11, when Jesus sends out the 70 to, uh, he sends them out two by two, and they go preaching in all the cities of Israel, and he tells them, whenever you enter a house, you say, peace be with you, or peace be on this house. So we saw when Jesus is coming in the midst of his fearful disciples, the first words he utters is, peace to you. Jesus is declaring the gospel to his disciples. It's not just the disciples came up with this gospel and took it out to the world themselves. Jesus himself brings it. And likewise, we see Jesus bringing the restoration that the disciples themselves, the apostles, would then begin to preach. Paul says that he's been given a ministry of reconciliation, and that follows in the mode of Jesus Christ. Today in this story, we see an amazing kind heart and disposition of God towards those who have fallen in gross, terrible, deep sin. And it is this that we begin to explore. So today, I want to look at first Jesus' kind kind words to the disciples uh, as he greets them. I want to look at what Jesus' miracle uh, reveals in that he is the Lord over all creation that the, just as the wind and the waves sub, uh, were subject to him in his life, so also Christ is still the Lord of all creation after his death and in his new life, his resurrection. I want to look at what happens in this breakfast on the shore and how it speaks to things that have happened in the, in the Gospel of John prior. I want to look at the restoration that Jesus takes Simon Peter through in in how he redirects and refocuses Simon's heart and mind concerning his relationship with God and his following of Jesus or his discipleship. And then finally, I want to echo what we saw last week. John 20 and John 21 are are both kind of like um, endings of of music. If you ever uh, look at the ending of a music, sometimes there's these little two dots at the end of a stanza or measure, and they tell you basically to go back and repeat something. And I think that the phrase that we looked at with John, when he declares his purpose for writing the Gospel of John, he says, these things are written so that you may believe, right? And and by believing, you may have life in his name. He does that exact same thing in this chapter at the end when he talks about his testimony. And I want to look at how we know that the Gospel of John is authentic uh, because of what he wrote in that very verse and what it means and why we're reading it again today. So on Good Friday, uh, if you were here with us, it was a wonderful service. But on Good Friday, three days before the resurrection, just to, for, for us to remember, all the disciples left, were scattered, uh, were driven away. They denied Christ publicly. They abandoned him at his trial when he was, after he was arrested, you see uh the, these uh, apostles, the disciples, they're running away, they're fleeing, and the verse is fulfilled from, I believe, Isaiah, strike the shepherd and the sheep will scatter. What, what was happening was uh, he was being arrested, and at that time, all of them ran away. Now, Peter, as you remember, Peter comes and kind of follows. Although every other disciple went to their home, Peter uh, kind of follows closely behind, just enough to be outside of their uh, radar, as it were. And yet in the resurrection, we see Christ tell Mary to go greet his brothers. Remember that last week? We saw how Jesus had said to Mary, go tell my brothers, I am ascending to my father and your father, my God and your God. Now, this he is declaring to people who had just abandoned him. 
Remember Jesus in, in the upper room, he's talking to the disciples and he's saying, I'm now bringing you into a place where you're not uh, a servant, you're not a slave, but now I'm going to call you a friend, right? So they're servants, slaves. Jesus at that point says to them, don't, don't say that you're uh, anything other than a, worth, uh, a faithful servant when you do what your master commands you. He brings them to the point where he calls them friends rather than just servants or slaves. And then through the resurrection, after their abandonment, he begins to declare them as brothers. The progression of relationship that Christ brings them into rather than they attain on their own is a magnificent picture of the gospel and how your heart is wooed to recognize Christ as the foundation and trust of your life. At this point, Jesus is speaking to those who had run away from him in his most dire hour. Now, I don't know about you in your personal relationships in life. You may have suffered rejection, abandonment, betrayal. This is what Jesus has encountered. And yet through the resurrection, the mercy of God is on display, not just in Christ raising from the dead, but what Christ does in restoring the disciples from the place that they had fallen. And this has master, uh, a masterfully beautiful pastoral implication for us. In the midst of our deepest sin, Christ is not running away, but rather calling us back to himself. That's what we see in this chapter. When Thomas demands at the end of uh, John 20 last week, we saw this, when he demands to see the Christ or else remain in unbelief, Jesus comes and reveals himself. He doesn't wait around and just let Thomas decide whether he's going to stay in his unbelief or eventually believe the witness that all the other disciples had uh you know, had presented to him. It's like Thomas was out going like for McDonald's or something and happened to like be out of the room. I don't know how, but he wasn't there. And what did the, what did Thomas demand? We all, we all give Thomas such a bad rap. We call him doubting Thomas. And, and really Thomas was just saying, I want the very same evidence that all the, the rest of the disciples received. When we sang that that song this morning, we sang it last week as well, Christ is risen, he is risen indeed. That song is a narrative about John 20 and the other uh, you know, situations through uh, the, the other gospels, as well as the, the book of Acts, and it has an application to us today. But in that, in that verse, uh, it is, blessed are those who have not seen yet sing hallelujah. That is what Jesus says to Thomas. And so Thomas, we kind of say, oh, he's doubting Thomas. Thomas just wanted the same evidence that all the other disciples had received. That's, that's all that Thomas is, is wanting. And so the disciples are given the evidence by Christ that they need to, to apprehend his resurrection. As the uh, famous theologian N.T. Wright makes clear, no one saw the resurrection coming. Even though Christ had totally explained to all of his disciples, all of his followers, time and again, that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer, be killed, and then in three days, raise again. Even though he said it in words that clear, they had no capacity to understand the resurrection. And that's clear to us because it's necessary for God, the Holy Spirit, to open your eyes to the miracle that's taken place and for you to be able to apprehend Christ as necessary for you, that his defeat of death was done so that you would one day be risen from the dead at the end of the age when he returns. And so the disciples are merely uh, experiencing Christ, and after that they begin to tell of of his goodness through the gospel. But before that, Christ has some uh, restoration that he needs to do, and that's what happens in these chapters. Jesus, of course, in 
showing himself to Thomas, he commands Thomas, he says, do not disbelieve, but rather believe. He's very clear. He says to Thomas, the evidence of my resurrection is not only sufficient, you need to place your trust in it. You need to believe in it. And so here, when, whenever we see these kind of things, we think to ourselves, oh, well, did God cause Thomas to have faith to believe? Yes, God caused Thomas to have faith to believe. But Thomas had to begin to agree, begin to participate, begin to place his trust on the evidence of Christ that he had been presented with. And so for us, we are followed, we follow in the same, same place. In the book of Acts, when it says God commands all people to repent and turn to the knowledge of the truth, that word commands is, is so, somewhat fuzzy to us. It, it seems weird. But here Jesus is saying, Thomas, it's no longer sufficient for you to disbelieve any longer. You must believe. You must begin to respond in faith to God. And so in this situation, Jesus is restoring the disciples. This is the context. That was the last chapter, which we covered last week. But in these situations, Jesus deals very kindly with his disciples, restoring them to faith instead of allowing them to remain in their situation of despair and brokenness. Can you imagine, for example, that you had a best friend? Imagine your best friend, and they get arrested on false charges. And while they're getting arrested, rather than uh, being with them, visiting them in jail, uh, attending to their every need in that moment, you run and you kind of like uh, ditch the car, leave them with the keys, and bail on them at the mit- in the very moment that they need you. What do you imagine would be your perspective on the rest of the situation? You would, you would despair. I've followed this person for years. I've been with this person for years. They were my best friend, and yet I denied them. I abandoned them in their hour of need. I would, I would submit to you that it is the disciples at the beginning of this chapter who are aimless, they're wandering around, they don't know what to do, and they're probably despairing. If, if, I had any, if the disciples are real humans, it, to me it seems perfectly reasonable that, they're, that they would be uh, despairing. If you were here in the Sunday school hour, I think my dad did a wonderful job presenting Paul's modus operandi. It's one of my favorite uh, you know, teachings of his. I've, I've heard it many times, and it, it just gets better and better. But in that teaching, he says that if you're going to be a disciple of Christ, all disciples of Christ, uh, and there are no Christians who are not supposed to be disciples of Christ, if you're going to be a disciple of Christ, then he is calling you to be a fisher of men. And that is exactly what happened to the disciples at the beginning of the Gospels. Jesus comes, and he says to the disciples, who are fishermen, come follow me, and I will make you a fisher of men. Now, here is where our biblical poetic training is going to help us understand what's going on in the hearts of the disciples. The disciples say, basically, even after seeing the resurrected Jesus, he's in their midst and he's not in their midst. He shows up occasionally. It doesn't seem that Jesus is walking with the disciples every day. Uh, Simon says to to the others, I'm going fishing. And they're kind of, as it were, reverting to their old calling. This is them basically saying, well, we don't know what to do. We don't know what Christ is wanting us to do. Uh, We thought he was going to uh, restore the order of the Davidic kingdom to Israel, and that didn't happen. Let's just go back to fishing. 
And this is the place, this is the sorrow and despair that they, they have, have completely forgotten the glorious calling that Jesus said to follow, that, follow him and to preach the good news, saying the kingdom's at hand. And at this place, the disciples yet are not filled with spirit. Again, we're waiting for the ascension and Pentecost for that to take place. And so they're just going back to natural thinking. Gone are all the memories of of the commands of Jesus to preach the good news to the poor, to uh, restore those who are sick in their body, to cast out demons. They revert back to what they know, what they can bank on. And so they go fishing, and not only is Simon Peter the, the ringleader, all the other disciples join in. But in the midst of this, Jesus seeks them out. Again, we, we see in the Gospels over and over again, Jesus restoring, Jesus rebuilding, Jesus bringing back to faith where there is just despair and doubt. And so Jesus arrives on the, on the shore, and he begins to, to speak to them. In verse 5, he says, children, do you, not, do you have any fish? They answered no. Now, the the fish, uh, of course, are an image for the the um, proselytes. That is, people who would hear the gospel over and over again throughout the scriptures. Fish are always a symbol of the nations who are not Israel. They're far away, and bringing uh, bringing the disciples along and calling them fishers of men. He is doing it intentionally. It's a word picture for the for the the church uh, that is to come. He, they're, they're asked if they have any fish, and they say no. It's clear they're, they're insufficient at this point. Though they had trained all their lives, uh, these, these kids probably were fishing maybe for 10 years at least. I don't know about you, but I've done a few things for 10 years. One of the things that I've done for 10 years is guitar. One of the other things that I've done for 10 years is computers. And if you told me that I was going to work on a computer for 10 hours and not be able to do anything, uh, at the end of the night, I would say that's crazy because I'm really good at computers. I'm sure you have things in your life that you've done for many years and you know, like riding a bike. If you tried all night to ride a bike and couldn't do it, you would think something is up. Here they're full of despair, they're thinking naturally minded, and in this place they've worked all night and they caught nothing, as verse 3 says. Jesus shows in mercy, he shows up on the shore, and he says, children, do you have any fish? They said, no. He said to them, cast the net on the right side of the boat, and you will find some. So they cast it, and now they were not able to haul it in because of the quantity of fish. Now, this is an amazing situation. You're telling me that all the fish were not around for the entire evening, and then after this guy who's standing on the shore, probably uh, quite a distance from the boat, shouts to them, cast your net on the right side, then it says that they were not able to haul in because of the quantity of fish. Now, one of the things that is interesting about this situation, the sea that they're at, the Sea of Tiberias, um, another name for uh, you know the, Gal- the Galilean shore, this sea was a place that all of Israel could come and fish in. So it's very possible in my mind that there were other boats that day who were actually having some success. There was a rule handed down by Joshua that every Israelite, no matter where they lived, were allowed to fish in that pond. And so in this situation, I just have to believe the disciples are at the bottom of the barrel of faith. They're depressed. They haven't caught anything. And yet Jesus comes and reveals himself to them. He says, cast it down, and then their nets are full. Now, of course, this net being 
being full is obviously a, a foreshadowing of the amazing gospel effectiveness that the disciples will have. But in this situation, we see a glimpse of who the person of Jesus is. Though the disciples don't recognize his voice, the fish certainly recognize Jesus' authority. And in this way, Jesus is revealed as not just the Lord over death, but also the Lord over all the created order. When he gets to Matthew 28 in, the, in what is so familiar with us, the, the Great Commission, and he says, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me, the disciples were not taking that on faith. They had seen it through the 40 days. Over and over again, they had seen him wield his authority. And so in this situation, right as this happens, we see a glimpse of Jesus. Jesus in this situation, by giving a command and guaranteeing victory, demonstrates that he's the Lord of all creation. But not only that, is giving his disciples a sign that when he speaks, fish jump in the net. This is a, this is a symbol that comes over and over again through the book of Acts. Whenever the gospel of Christ is faithfully proclaimed, huge numbers of people turn to the Lord. And in this situation, this miracle that happens, it's meant in this story for the revelation and exaltation of Jesus Christ. And the gospel of John, the writer, uh, he does not miss it at all. The disciple whom Jesus loved, therefore, said to Peter, it is the Lord. When Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put on his outer garment, for he was stripped for work and threw himself into the sea. The purpose of a miracle is to reveal the person and work of Jesus Christ. If you are seeking for miraculous power in your life or ministry without the purpose of it being evangelistic or at least uh, encouraging to the church, then you are seeking a false power that will never show up. If, however, you are seeking to be a person who lives a life being filled with the Spirit in such a way that the miracles done through your in encouraging ministry to others is one that would exalt Jesus, then I have to believe that they will attend your ministry. In this situation, John recognizes Jesus in the midst of the miracle. Now, at this point, Simon just kind of jumps out of the boat, and uh, he's kind of done with the fish. He doesn't really want to be with the disciples any longer. But when before they make it onto the shore, Jesus has already made a fire and cooked a breakfast. I want, I want to make this really clear. Jesus did not wait for them to bring the fish on the shore uh, for the, the breakfast that he was preparing. And it has beautiful implications. The implication, uh, we'll look in a second, but he said to them, cast the net, then... Verse 8, the other disciples came in the boat. Verse 9, uh, it says, when they got on the land, they saw a charcoal fire in place and fish laid out on it. So the disciples did not, so just to be clear, when Simon Peter jumped into the water, he did not swim to shore with a basket of fish or fish in his hands as he's swimming. Because I've heard that and it's, that's ridiculous. Jesus here prepares a place for his disciples. He prepares a meeting place. Remember in, in Mark uh, uh, 4 and 5, he says to the disciples, after the feeding of the 5,000, which this is a retelling or a slight uh, recapitulation of that event, he says to them, come away with me and go to the other side and rest a while. It says, for there, there had been many coming and going, and the disciples did not even have time to eat. Now here, the fish that are caught for breakfast are not, or the fish that are for breakfast are not at all the fish that the disciples have caught. And this speaks about what the Lord is doing. 
as as you may remember, the the feeding of the five thousand takes place at the very same place uh, that this is happening on the shore. It was just a little bit of uh, a distance, just maybe a mile. And in this way, this is a retelling. In the feeding of the five thousand, Jesus is demonstrated as a king who feeds his people. He provides for his people. Many situations in the past, in the Old Covenant, uh, built on this theme. Moses prays to the Lord, the Lord sends quail. Moses prays to the Lord, the Lord sends manna. David prays to the Lord, there's provision. Uh, over and over again, uh, Joshua prays to the Lord and they enter into the land flowing with milk and honey. The the patriarch or the, the person who is God's agent in the story always intervenes and brings sustenance for the people. Likewise, here the Lord is shown to be the king who provides. And so in this situation, as well as the feeding of the 5,000, the disciples are not the ones who have the fish and the loaves. The sustenance that our faith requires does not come from our own effort, but rather from the Lord. This chapter in the restoration of Simon Peter and the rest of the disciples is all about the pastoral implications for believers. And I believe that this is, is saying something important. Just as earlier Christ said peace to you when he showed up in the room, so also he comes and gives the bread and the fish to the disciples directly for them to eat. Whereas in the past, they had gone out and said peace to you, and in the past, they had given the fish and the loaves to the crowd. Here, Jesus himself is feeding the disciples. Verse 13, Jesus came and took the bread and gave it to them, and so with the fish. This was now the third time that Jesus was revealed to the disciples after he was raised from the dead. At this point, the gospel writer, at the end of the meal, he notes that this was the revelation. See, Jesus here is revealed in the meal that he shares with the disciples. That's kind of a summary statement, and then what happens with Simon Peter is not necessarily just a revelation of Jesus, the meal was the re revelation. Jesus is now going to restore uh, Simon Peter. So after this breakfast, Jesus begins to engage. And in this place, they have a dialogue that I believe is one of the most beautiful encounters in all of the Gospels. It's filled with repetition, with symbolism. And I believe the structure of each phrase has direct implication for how we are to live our lives. John 21, 15 when they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And he said to him, feed my lambs. Now, one of the things that I'd like to actually highlight is, and I don't like to do this because it's um, it, it kind of distracts somewhat from plain reading of the scripture. This phrase, son of John, is actually more accurately presented as Simon, son of Jonah. And what did Jesus say would be given as the only sign to the wicked and adulterous generation? No sign will be given except the son of, sign of Jonah. What is the sign of Jonah? The sign of Jonah was that Jonah went into the belly of the fish, went down to the depths of, of the sea, and then after, day, after three days, he was uh, brought back to the shore. So likewise, Jesus, in saying that uh, no sign will be given but the sign of Jonah, is prophesying about his resurrection. He's calling Peter a son of Jonah, At likewise a son of Jesus, a disciple who is living in true unity with his disciples' mission and purpose and identity. Jesus, by identifying Simon Peter as Simon, son of Jonah, is speaking not just to his his calling of Simon, but even his purpose for living his life. 
At this point, Jesus says, do you love me more than these? I want to be explicitly clear. Jesus is not saying, Simon, do you love me more than these fish? Simon, do you love me more than you love the disciples? He is explicitly asking him, Simon, do you love me more than the disciples love me? The other disciples. He's saying that for a reason. He's pointing a finger in an open wound, as it were, to Simon. Not in meanness, not in a, a, a spiteful way. He's doing it to engage Peter on a very specific level. Peter earlier in the, in the betrayal of Jesus had said to Jesus that even if all others deny you, Lord, I will not deny you. He then goes on to say, even if all others forsake you, I will die with you. And what Jesus is doing is saying to Peter, Peter, I saw your betrayal and yet I'm seeking after you. Do you love me more than everyone else loved me? Was, was it true when you said to me, Peter, that you weren't going to turn away? Peter replies, yes, but this time, instead of putting the burden of proof on himself and his own pride, he puts the burden of proof on Jesus's knowledge. He says, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Jesus commands him then to feed his lambs. Pay attention to the order. Simon, do you love me? Yes, Lord, I love you. Feed my lambs. This pattern happens again and again. Finally, at the, the last time, John 21, 17, he said to him the third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he had said to him the third time, do you love me? Now, of course, the, the gospel writer here is saying specifically that by saying it three times, Jesus is intentionally repeating the denial. He's undoing with each repetition. Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. At this point, Simon Peter re recapitulates the uh, the understanding that, or it we re-engage that knowledge when, when Simon Peter says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. Here, Simon Peter says, Lord, not only do you know that I love you, you know everything that there is to know. At this place, Simon Peter is then told to, to feed his sheep. Peter is grieved, of course, because he's reminded of his sin. And yet, Jesus, as the master physician, his words are cutting like a knife into Peter's heart to remove that cancer of pride and in, in its place, restore and, and bring anointing and bring healing. And these words that Jesus, is, uh, Jesus says, this encounter with Peter that happens three times is like a washing. It's an undoing of the betrayal that, that Peter went through. It's a restoration and a maturation of Peter. In asking Peter if he loves him, Jesus is redirecting Peter to focus on loving him and to focus on him before he focuses on feeding the lambs. Over and over again, Peter's modus, uh, his mode of operation, it was over and over in the, in the Gospels as, I'm going to be the best disciple, even if all others betray you, I'll never leave. Who's going to be the greatest in, in your kingdom, Right? Simon Peter was full of himself. He was full of resting and trusting on his own ability. And at this time, Jesus is redirecting his focus. Simon, do you love me? Okay, if you love me, then feed my lambs. Not feed my lambs because you love me. Not feed my lambs and then love me. Simon, do you love me? Then feed my lambs. 
It's only after the meal that God tells Peter to feed his lambs. Likewise, we can only minister out of the overflow of our relationship with God. If we attempt to go and fish without the Lord's voice commanding what side of the net to put it down on, we will catch nothing. Likewise, if we go and seek to give food that we don't have before eating with the Lord, we will have nothing to share at all. The question, do you love me, must be answered before you can be told to feed his lambs. Jesus then uh, kind of restores Peter, and he says to him at the end, uh, follow me. Now, of course, we know the stories. Peter's going to get it wrong. Peter's missteps are so encouraging to me personally. Uh, They should be encouraging to you. When they had finished uh, breakfast, uh, right after that uh, interaction, Peter turns and starts getting concerned with his brothers rather than concerned with the Lord. The Lord had just taught him directly, intimately, in a, in a way that would form and shape his life. Words that would ring through Peter's ears for the rest of his life and ministry. Simon Peter, do you love me more than these? Simon would, would, would never forget his betrayal from the Lord of the Lord, but he would also never forget the restoration. And yet, although it's stored in his long-term memory, his short-term memory just kind of directs him somewhere else. Simon looks at the disciple who Jesus loved. When Peter had saw him, he said to Jesus, Lord, what about this man? Verse 22, Jesus said to him, if it is my will that he remain until I come, what is that to you? You follow me. So often in our lives, we get concerned with what our brother, our sister, our spouse is doing, our parents, what they're doing. And over and over again, Christ is saying, follow me. Don't look to the right, to the left. Follow me. Now, of course, um, one of the proofs of the gospel, uh, it's not on the screen, is actually the fact that things that are absurd are written about the people in the gospel. That's uh, one of the so-called textual proofs of authenticity. In your diary, you probably, hopefully you take a diary. You, I'd really encourage you, have a time in your life where you have a diary. It's, it's amazing. Um, but in your journal, in your diary, the way, one of the ways to see if you're being authentic with yourself, um, you know, Shakespeare's quote, what, from what play is it? Hamlet, this above all to thine own self be true. What a great phrase. In these gospels, they have phrases that seem absurd and are uh, quite embarrassing. And one of the greatest textual proofs of the gospel, of the scripture's authenticity as the word of God is honesty. So the saying, verse uh, 23, so the saying spread abroad among the brothers that this disciple was not to die, yet Jesus did not say to him that he was not to die, but if it is my will that he remain until I come, what is it to you? It's absolutely absurd that the disciples would uh, believe that John was going to not die, and there's actually some people throughout church history who believe that John the, the Apostle is still roaming the earth somewhere. Now, I have to tell you that John the Apostle definitely died. He wrote a book uh, called Revelation. He was, he was definitely dead. And um, it's just an amazing thing that even though Jesus had risen from the dead, yet the disciples were still in, in foolishness. Now, when we get to Pentecost, I hope you will keep these missteps in the back of your mind 
as being things that are both encouraging to you in your own missteps, but also speak volumes of our need for Jesus Christ to ascend to the throne of heaven and to, from that place, pour out the Holy Spirit on his church. Without that, the disciples are just going to go back to fishing. Without that, the disciples are going to be caught up in myths. They're going to lack boldness, and they're not going to bring the gospel. Now, at this point, the gospel writer, John, he says a sentence in verse 24, um, even if you don't buy the, uh, the standard of embarrassment argument, even if you don't buy that, John the, the uh, apostle has this verse in verse 24, he testifies concerning his own witness. And as I've been teaching you over, over the last few weeks, last few months, the Bible says that you need two or three witnesses. How do you know that John the apostle is saying is telling the truth? In verse 24, it says, this is the disciple. He's identifying himself again, just like he did in last chapter. This is the disciple who is bearing witness about these things and who has written these things, and we know that his testimony is true. Don't let that slip you. He says, we know that his testimony is true. Who is the we? It's a royal we. It's, an, it's a plural we. It's, it's a we that is basically saying, me and my fellow brothers in the faith. The apostle write, who's writing this is saying, I'm, I'm the guy who the Lord loved, and I'm bearing witness about these things. He's closing his, his gospel now. And he says, I'm witnessing about these things, and we know that his testimony is true. Where did, where did one of these situations happen in this same book, John 8? G- John is certainly testifying himself, but he gives glory to Christ. Jesus says, if I testify about myself, you know that my testimony is not true, but I do not testify about myself, but rather I give glory to the one who sent me, the Father. And so John, in that same vein, following in his disciples' footsteps, he's saying, I am ter- telling a testimony that is true because he's not bringing glory to himself. He's bringing glory to Christ. And certainly we, we do need the two or three witnesses, and those are the other gospels and the scriptures, all of which were received by the church, being directed by the Holy Spirit, who continues to anoint their preaching and message. That is how we know the gospel of John is true, not because we have some sort of uh, chain of evidence in a Ziploc bag that's been uh, attested to over time. The Holy Spirit still anoints the preaching of the gospel of John, and the fact that the church received it originally is backing up John's claim that we know his testimony is true. The church received it. John is certainly uh, testifying about himself, but he's giving glory to Christ. Now, this chapter, the the whole end of this book, is about Jesus being recognized in the miracle and in the meal. He's first recognized in the miracle by John, and then after that, the disciples come and break bread, and then he was revealed a third time. Likewise, for us today, we discern the body of the Lord through the meal that we are about to take. And it is in this meal that Christ is ready to say to you, sinner, sinner who's done terrible, horrible things, follow me. Come to me, be restored to me. In the place in the place of their worst sin of their life, think about the worst sin of your life. It is nothing compared to the sin that they went through in betraying the Lord. In the midst of their worst sin, Jesus seeks them out. That's what he does as the good shepherd. 
Here at this meal, we see him already waiting for us to come and to dine with him, ready to restore those who have forsaken him. And we all certainly have done that. And in this place, Christ comes, welcomes us back to himself and says, follow me. So let's pray. Father, we thank you for this wonderful meal through which we believe that we will partake of your body and blood. We do ask, Lord, that you would fill us with faith, that you would cause us to discern rightly the body of Christ. Lord, we we ask that you would guard us from presumptuously taking communion, but rather that you would fill us with, with faith, knowing that you do invite us to come. All those who have been with you, who have followed you, Lord, in the midst of their sin, you do not abandon them. God, I, I pray that you would cause us to recognize your wonderful mercy and grace, not only that you defeated death in the resurrection, which we celebrate these weeks of Easter, but also that you are faithful to restore our hearts of death and make us come alive. Lord, we thank you for the renewal that you bring at the preaching of your word. And we do ask, Lord, that we would, in anticipation of being filled with the Spirit, again through Pentecost, that we would come to you and we would eat with you before we try to share with others. And that like Peter, we would answer that question that we love you before we attempt to feed your lambs. Lord, we ask that as we go through our life this week, that we would continually see you waiting, wanting to have fellowship with us, wanting to gather us together and to break bread again. Lord, we thank you for your wonderful meal. Lord, we celebrate your resurrection. We honor you and we bless you. In Jesus' mighty name, amen.